You know, it, it typically doesn't go well when you offend a king. Um, check out this example. The three brave young men heard the king's instruction that when the music sounds, when the trumpets join in to all the other horns, at that point you were to bow down before the golden image and worship. So the music started, the horns joined in, the trumpets sounded, and the great mighty throng of people bowed down before the golden image except for these three brave young men. And the king in his fury called the men to himself and said, listen, I'm going to give you one more chance. When the music sounds, you must bow down to the golden image. But if not, then I'm going to throw you in this furnace and burn you to death. And the three brave young men looked at the king and said, O king, we can only bow down and worship the living God. We will not bow down to this image. And the king, furious, heated up the furnace seven times hotter than usual, so hot that when the guards threw the three men in, the guards were consumed with the flames and died. But by a miracle of the living God, the three men survived. Not only did they survive, but they came out of the furnace with not even a hair of their head tinged or singed. But it typically doesn't go well when you offend the king. Consider this example. The king in a drunken stupor demanded that his wife, the queen, come and entertain his drunken party of noblemen. And the queen refused. And before you knew it, she was no longer the queen ever again. It typically does not go well when you offend the king, when you offend a powerful ruler. Think about the brave prophet who confronted the ruler of Galilee for stealing his brother's wife and, and taking her to be his own. And the wife was complicit in this. And the brave prophet confronted the ruler. And at the wife's request, the wife's demand, he imprisoned this brave prophet and it wasn't long after that that the brave prophet's head was offered on a platter to the king. No, it typically does not go well when you offend a powerful ruler. And you probably recognize these rulers. Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of Babylon. King Ahasuerus, ruler of Persia. King Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias of the Galilean region in, in Judah. Let me give you one more example, a little more recent. July 20th, 1944, a bomb exploded in the conference room and many men were either killed or maimed. But a sturdy table leg protected the life of Adolf Hitler and he escaped from that situation with minor injuries. But in his rage, Hitler, of the 7,000 people that he believed either knew of the assassination attempt ahead of time or had in some way opposed him during the course of his rule of Germany, he had 5,000 of them executed within that year, including Christian pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No, it typically does not go well when you offend the king, when you offend a powerful ruler. I'll give you one more example out of Revelation 19 of an offended king. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a picture of an offended king. King Jesus, offended by the sin of mankind. And it does not go well, typically, when you offend the king. We're going to spend our time looking at this king today. We're going to look at another response that he had when he was offended. And that'll be out of Luke chapter 22. This will be the text we'll work out of. I'm going to read verses 14 through 30. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're looking this morning at this King Jesus who was offended. And we're going to look at that in a minute, but first I want to set the context of what this evening is all about. As you probably realize, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night of his arrest, the night when his suffering begins. And it's a night of agony, and there's a dark cloud of suffering that hangs over this whole evening, and Jesus knows it. It's a night of tremendous agony for him including this night and the the day that follows. So these 24 hours are horrific. It's a night of agony, and we know that, that it's hanging over him because he says in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows that suffering is coming, but he wants to savor this time with his disciples, with these men who have stayed with him through thick and thin. It's a, it's a time of respite for him. 
And he's looking forward to it. And he has things he wants to share with them as to why he is going to die. He wants them to understand that. So he's been eagerly looking forward to it. But this is a night that he is going to suffer. And we know it's a night of agony because if we were to read ahead to verse 44 in Luke 22, we'd read these words. And being in an agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. A little later on the same evening, so much agony, so much tension in his body that he's sweating drops of blood, that the capillaries next to his skin are bursting and water and blood are spilling out onto the ground in great drops because of the agony that he is to face that night. And there's some things about the agony that the scripture tells us. We learn that this agony that Jesus is facing that night, I mean, for one, some of it's emotional agony because he's going to have friend, a friend betray him, another friend deny him, other friends desert him. It's going to be a night of physical agony this night and the day that follows because he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be blindfolded, and then people are going to come up and he never knows when the next blow is coming, but they're going to, they're going to strike him. And then they're going to say, tell us, who was it who hit you? Can you imagine being blindfolded and not knowing when the next blow is coming and then there it is again? And then there's another one. And the terror just of that. And his physical suffering would continue. He would have his back shredded by a cat of nine tails, a beating that would take the lives of many men that would just shred him. And then on that same back, he would carry a rough wooden cross to the hill of Golgotha where he would be nailed and the nails would pierce his body and the searing pain of that. So all that physical agony is lying ahead for Jesus on this night and the following day. And can you imagine what that would be like? But the thing is, I haven't even described the worst of the agony. It gets worse because for the first time ever, Jesus is going to know the displeasure of his father because Jesus, the sinless one, the one who hates sin, the one who runs from sin, who flees from temptation, who must judge every sin, this same Jesus is going to become sin for us. He's going to become sin. And when he becomes sin for all who place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin, he's going to pay for that on the cross once and for all. But he's going to absorb the wrath and displeasure of his Father that is due to each one of us. Jesus is going to absorb that on the cross and he's never known the displeasure of his father. And that is the most agonizing thing ever that he is wrestling with on this night. You know how it is when you sin and you feel guilty. Can you imagine bearing the sins of the world on your shoulders and the guilt of the world on your shoulders and then having your father who has never ever turned from you turn away from you? That's what Jesus was going to be enduring if we read through the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus can't even conceive of life apart from his Father. He, he says things like, I only do my Father's will. I look around, I see what my Father's doing, and that's what I do too. I only do the works that my Father commands me to do. He just can't think of life apart from his Father. And that is the deepest agony that he's going to be facing. It's this dark cloud that's hanging over this night, this time with his disciples. Can you imagine what that would be like? And then the offenses start to come, right? The first offense is this. 
Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The hand with me on the table is going to betray me. My friend is going to betray me. And it's not going to go well for this man, right? Jesus says, woe to him, curses to him, death to him who betrays him. It will not go well for Judah for offending the king. But there's another offense that occurs the same night that I really want us to zoom in on. And that is out of verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, among the disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine that? Okay. How would you respond to that? Here it is, this night of intense agony, and I think all I would be thinking of is this agony that is to come, and I just want the people around me to be encouraging me and supporting me. My friends, I need them in this hour. And what are they doing? They're concerned about which one of them is the greatest. They're fighting about that. And maybe we can see how they got there. Maybe when Jesus said that the hand of him who betrays me is at the table with me, and they start to ask one another which one of, the, of them it could be, maybe, maybe it went something like this. Maybe Peter thought, hey, guys, look, I'm the one who walked on the water uh, to Jesus, and, and I confessed that he was the Christ. I was the first one to do that, so it wouldn't be me. And maybe John jumps in and says, yeah, I'm his favorite, you know. I'm the closest one to him, and, and then maybe all of a sudden they're starting to one-up one another. I don't know how exactly it happened, but we could see that how it could morph into this discussion among them about which one is the greatest. But that's a horrific offense to the king of kings on this night, and on any night, when human beings are just trying to figure out which one of them is the greatest when the king of kings is standing in their presence. And this wasn't even the first time this had happened, this argument about who's the greatest. If we bounce back to Mark chapter 9, we read this account. And they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they already knew it was wrong. When he asked them, what were you talking about? They are like, uh, we can't say uh, they didn't want to say because they knew it was wrong. But this was an issue they'd had before. And what did Jesus do with that? He sat down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He was very patient with them. He taught them. Well, but this is this night. This, this argument came up more than once in Scripture prior to this night when this dispute broke out among them. This is not the first time it's happened. It's happened on many occasions. And here they are, they're at it again. And on top of that, think about what happened earlier that night before supper. John records this from his gospel. They, they came to the upper room for this meal together, and there was no servant. They'd been tromping around in the dust and the dirt and the dung all day. And they come to this meal, and nobody washes the feet of these guys. And Jesus takes up the basin and the towel and lovingly goes to each one of his disciples and washes their feet tenderly, demonstrates his love for them that way and encourages them to do the same thing. So that had happened that night already. Then they'd had communion together, a time of unity, and now here they are fighting among which of them is going to be the greatest. That's a huge offense against the great king. But notice his response to these men. His response is very patient. The first 
thing that he responds with is he teaches them the same thing again. Luke 2, 25. He says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Same thing he taught them back in Mark 9. Same thing he taught them many times. I feel like I would have been exasperated, but Jesus loves He's patient. He's kind. He's not consumed with himself and his own suffering and agony, even though it's hanging like a dark cloud above his head. He loves his disciples well. And it's an amazing response. Second thing he does that I think is stunning is in verse 28. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You guys, you've, you've been with me in my hardest times, you've been with me in my trials. He compliments them. And we want to say, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, okay, one of you is going to betray me, Jesus said. And then in verse 34, right after this account, if we were to keep reading, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me. And then bouncing back to Mark 14, We read these words. Same night, Mark's gospel, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus says, when he's struck, when the shepherd is struck, you guys are going to disappear. When I'm arrested, you guys are going to scatter. And so it was because in verse 50, right after Jesus is arrested, it says, and they all left him and fled. And Jesus says, You're the ones who stayed with me in my trials. Well, what is he talking about? He's not lying. But they're about to have this epic fail. All of them are going to disappear and run and hide and not have anything to do with him. And he's complimenting them. He's remembering their faithfulness despite their weakness, despite their struggle, despite what they're about to do. Jesus remembers their faithfulness. And they have been faithful. There was an account in Luke 9 where where a man comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, look, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. It's going to cost you to follow me. I don't have a place to stay. And Peter said, Lord, we've left everything and we followed you. We've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said, yes, you have. You know, they have given up a lot to be with Jesus. There were times when Jesus' life was in tremendous danger And these disciples stayed with him. They did not abandon him. And then we we read this maybe in in Luke, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 6. This telling event, verse 66. After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And it would not go well for Judas when he betrayed Jesus. But these other eleven, these faithful ones, he remembers their faithfulness. He doesn't forget it. And then there's one more thing that Jesus does on this night. 
Verse 29, he says, And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys are going to be great. They're fighting about who's the greatest. Jesus tells them what true greatness looks like. But then he says, I remember your faithfulness. And he says, I'm assigning to you a kingdom. What a gracious, patient, humble response from this king who is offended. What a gracious, amazing king, Jesus, we have. So as we think about this passage today, there's maybe four applications that I think we can draw from it. Probably more than that, but four that that I've drawn from it. The first one is this. It's thinking about what true greatness looks like. True greatness looks like Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves, right? True greatness looks like setting self aside in the relentless pursuit of serving and loving God, serving and loving others with no thought to self. That's true greatness. True greatness looks like a man who used to come here uh, during the week with a backpack and a vacuum hose attached to it. And he'd walk around the building sucking up dead flies. Then he'd leave. Wouldn't even check in. He'd just come in and do this. Caught him a couple times. That's true greatness, right? That's just serving. It's loving. True greatness looks like those of you who get up early on a Sunday morning and come and make sure things are ready for the service today, whether it's through participating on the worship team or, or welcoming people when they come in the doors or handing out bulletins or showing them to a seat or watching children so parents can come to the service and, and hear the gospel and, and sing praises or teaching Sunday school, or working with Generation 180, or One Way Club, or teaching children's church, coming out in the middle of the week to practice so that worship can be led well on a Sunday morning. All these things, true greatness, that's what Jesus says, true greatness looks like, and he calls us to it, and I'm sure I'm missing many of the things that many of you do, but that's what true greatness is. That's one application that we are called to. True greatness is not about making much of me, right? It's about exalting Christ. It's making Jesus famous. That's what true greatness does. Second thing that we can take out of this is that Jesus remembers our faithfulness too. Just like he remembered the disciples' faithfulness when they were about to have that epic fail, he remembers our faithfulness too. Do you have difficult people in your life? Maybe a difficult spouse, or a difficult child, a rebellious child, or, or maybe a tough neighbor, or a coworker, or a boss. I'm not talking about Pastor Jeff right now. <laughs> but, but can you imagine if you have a very difficult person in your life, and yet you serve them graciously, and you love them. Jesus remembers your faithfulness. Maybe there's pressure on you to do some things that you know are wrong, and you stand up and say, no, I can't do that. And maybe nobody else knows it except you and Jesus. (laughs) Jesus remembers your faithfulness. He will not forget it. Maybe you have opportunities to cheat in school or cut corners at work, tax season, maybe cheat on your taxes. All those temptations are out there. Maybe, Maybe there's somebody in your room at school or at your school who's always an outcast and you reach out to them. And you stand up for what is right. Jesus remembers your faithfulness, even if no one else does. He remembers our faithfulness. Just like he did with the disciples. He remembers those things. 
Third thing, he also assigns to us a kingdom. Okay, he, is, he said to his disciples, I assign to you a kingdom. Well, if we look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, John sees this scene. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And Peter says in 1 Peter, he calls Christians a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. So we reign, right? We're, we're small kings under Christ. So what does it mean to be a king? I mean, how, you know, what do we do as small kings under Christ? Well, I love the picture of, of Jesus. When he's on earth, he shows us what it looks like to reign. He says, we read this out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. When Jesus was here on earth, he pulled back the curtain to show us what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He gave us a picture of it a temporal picture of an everlasting kingdom that's going to come. And we, as the church, we live in a broken, dark, sinful world. There's this dark kingdom that we all live in. but We've been called out of it to this other kingdom. The church is this bright, glorious, brilliant alternative to the darkness that's all around us. And that's the kingdom of God. So we're to be proponents of this kingship, this kingdom that God has entrusted to us. As small kings, we're to reflect King Jesus to this world. And the church is the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. So that looks like thinking what our king loves. Our king loves justice and righteousness and humility and mercy. Do we love those things too? Are those things we chase after? Are those things evident in us as small kings under Jesus? Jesus loved the stranger. That's what the word hospitality means in the Bible, love of the stranger. So how do we love strangers? A stranger would be somebody who doesn't quite think like we do, maybe doesn't believe the same way we do, maybe looks different, I don't know. But invite a stranger to coffee and begin to demonstrate to them that there's this alternative kingdom, this bright kingdom that we can be a part of. That's what it looks like to reign as small kings on this earth. And that is our calling, brothers and sisters. We, are, we also have been assigned a kingdom. And the fourth thing I want to mention in terms of application, just to remind us again that it typically does not go well when you offend the king. And maybe you are not a Christian yet. Maybe you've not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior. This text has something for you as well because there are two potential responses from the great king. Either it's the one we have just been looking at in Luke 22 or it's the one we read earlier in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse tramping out 
the fury of the wrath of God. What makes the difference between the two responses? The winepress of the fury of God's wrath will be poured out. God is just. He must punish every single sin. So either God's wrath is poured out on God's Son on your behalf so that there's not one bit of wrath or one bit of condemnation left for you. And if you have received the gift of God's Son as your Savior, there's no wrath left. God's demeanor toward you is exactly the way it was to his disciples, to the 11 faithful disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He knew their weakness, but he had called them to himself. They were his. And they were going to fail, but he knew them. They were his. And his demeanor toward them was one of grace and kindness and patience and mercy. Sure, he corrected them, and he does that with us as well. But that's one option, is to have that demeanor of God toward you through placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the other option. God's demeanor toward you will be one of wrath because of your sin. He has offered a way out of this wrath, a free gift of salvation. But if we ignore that, we're choosing the option to feel the wrath of God onto ourselves the wrath that we looked at, we just got a, a picture of it this morning when we thought about Jesus' agony, but the Bible talks about it as eternal torment. Would you want the agony of eternity that Jesus experienced the night of his betrayal and arrest and the following day of his execution, would you want that on you for eternity? Or do you want to be completely free of condemnation? If so, we each have that decision to make. What will you choose? Will you choose Christ, the King of kings, who has paid that penalty on your behalf, and if you ask him to, he will forgive you of your sin, and his demeanor will be gracious toward you forever? Or will you choose instead to accept the wrath of God for eternity? The choice is for each one of us to make. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Uh, it's just stunning to see how Jesus responds to his disciples, even when they offended him as the great king. But thank you that because he has paid for our sin and, and received our condemnation, that there's none left for us. Thank you for this incredible gift that you've offered us. And I pray that every person in this room today would receive Christ, would trust in him, would know the forgiveness of their sin, and would know the king's favor for eternity. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.